Welcome to the April 8th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And today's reading is 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and Luke chapter 9. Hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Samuel chapter 11. Uh, At the beginning of this chapter, we're introduced to Nahash the Ammonite, uh, as we're told that he laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. Laid siege. What a siege is, is when an army completely encircles a city so that nothing or no one can go in and nothing or no one can go out. Eventually, they, they just shut off all of the resources and eventually the people began to die because they run out of water and or food. And a little bit later on, as we get deeper into the historical books of the Old Testament, we'll even read of a situation where a siege was laid against an Israelite city and the people resorted to cannibalism. <clears throat> the people of um, Jabesh Gilead, you know, asked Nahash the Ammonite, asked uh, if they could have seven days to see if anyone in Israel would come to help. And Nahash apparently gave these messengers the right to go out past the siege, past the army, and then to go seeking help for seven days. Apparently, um, Nahash did this because he had such a low view of the Israelites and uh, just as he watched them, the recklessness and their inability to, to experience success. And they were just, he, he just looked down on them as a people. So he said, of course you can go out and see if you can muster anybody. So um, they sent the messengers. And when the messengers arrived in Gibeah, uh, where Saul was, they were telling the people what uh, what was going on at Jabesh Gilead, and Saul came in from the field and saw the people weeping. They were broken over this. So when he heard what had happened, Saul was furious. Now, one of the things that we'll realize about Saul as we get to know him a little bit as a character is one of the things that he had was a low self-image. Um, the other thing he had was a very deplorable relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> and two... He also had a temper. I mean, he could go from even kill to trying to kill someone in a moment's notice. And so when he heard what had happened, he was furious. He cut his oxen to pieces and sent them to all of Israel, sent the pieces, the, the individual pieces to all of Israel. And honestly, as I was reading this, this was reminding me of Judges 19 and 20 when the Ephraimite um, went to a city and um the uh, those that wanted to rape him homosexually, uh, his concubine was sent out, and so they raped her all night and killed her. So what he did is he cut his dead concubine. At least we think she was dead. Uh, whenever he did this, he cut her in body into pieces and sent it to all of Israel. Well, all of Israel was just furious at this, that this sort of degradation would happen. Pieces of a female's body being sent out to all of the nation, that they came to Benjamin, and Benjamin protected the evil people. So Israel attacked and virtually wiped out all of Benjamin because body parts had been sent out to all of Israel. Well, what's Saul the Benjaminite doing 
is he's sending body parts out of oxen. I mean, this is just the irony is so crazy here. Uh, someone whose tribe was almost wiped out because of an activity like this, except it was human. He did the same act, except it was an animal. But he did it to motivate and inspire to get all of Israel to come together. And sure enough, they did. Uh, to join him against the Ammonites. And in verse 11, it says, The next day Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. They, uh, there were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. And so what we see is that the people now fully were fully behind Saul as their king. Nothing, this is a principle, nothing rallies people to a leader like the times when he or she rises to the occasion and leads their people to victory. And that's what happened here. Had nothing to do with Saul's character, had everything to, to, to do with the fact that Saul simply hadn't happened to be in the position of leader when Israel experienced a victory. And so they um, were sending all of their respect toward him and following him. Well, apparently, that's why Samuel... Uh, said, let's go back to Gilgal to renew the kingship there. I mean, why would you need to renew the kingship? He's already been anointed king. Why would you need to do this again? I think it's because now Samuel is, um, he's bought in. Now Samuel is saying, okay, now I feel more comfortable about this guy, Saul, this guy that was hiding among the supplies that we had to go find to bring him out to anoint him with oil and proclaim him king. Now he's led Israel in a victory, so okay, let's go back and let's just really make a to-do of this. Some have speculated that this may have been on the first anniversary of his kingship. Maybe it was the a year celebration uh, because we're not told much of what happened, but it appears to be a big deal, a big to-do. And so Saul was once again, uh, was, was now uh, renewed to the kingship and all Israel fully embraced him as king. First Samuel chapter 12. In verses uh, 1 through 3, Samuel acknowledges the fact that, yes, he is old and uh, he has now anointed a king. And then, you know, the, the, it's like he's acknowledging that, uh, you know, he's just wanting to tie up any loose ends as he is preparing for his demise whenever that happens. And so he stands before the people and he asks if there is anything wrong or unjust that he's done during his time as a leader. Essentially, he's drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is your chance. If I've done anything wrong, you can publicly bring it up and publicly disgrace me if you want. But the fact that he's bringing it up leads us to believe that he knew that there was no major flaw in during his time of leadership. And... Uh, so the people in verses 4 through 6 could not think of anything. And so Samuel acknowledged their answer and then restated it for all to hear. You yourselves have said that I have done no wrong during my time. I'm wanting you to know, I want you to know that integrity was incredibly important to Samuel. I tell you, we have seen people, we have heard of people who are particularly in Christian ministry, pastors, Christian leaders that have had an incredible ministry and then something torpedoes their ministry and 
I mean, it's even worse when it's they themselves torpedo their ministry where they do something or it's found that they had been engaged in sinful, maybe even illegal activity behind the scenes. Um, Samuel wanted it to be made clear. Hey, let's talk about this publicly, he told the people. If I've done anything wrong, you tell me and let's talk about it. But the fact that he was doing this publicly was verifying the fact that even though he acknowledged, would readily acknowledge he was not perfect, that he had committed no grievous offense during his leadership. I just want to encourage you that ultimately our example is Jesus. But all throughout the scripture, we have secondary examples of men and women to look at and say, hey, that's an example I want to follow. Samuel's example of being a leader with no major flaws, no major grievances with anyone, no major sins, that's how I want to finish. Then, uh, in verses 7 through 12, uh, he gave them a history lesson. Uh, one of the things that God's done with us is he's made us for stories. We love telling stories. We especially love hearing stories. That's why the, the movie industry and the movie industry uh, on, on television uh, is such a big industry as we love being brought into a story. And so Samuel told them a story. He told them their story, and he gave them a history lesson of how that they had been called by God, but they just went through the cycles of they sinned, and then they cried out to the Lord. They were rescued only to fall back into sin again. And so what he did is essentially said, I'm calling you Israelites to stop that cycle. And in verses 13 through 15, he called them to be serious about obeying the Lord and his commands. Listen to his words in verses 13 through 15. He said, Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord... He's saying not, not, I know you do. He's saying if. So it's up to them to determine whether or not they actually have a relationship with the Lord that's substantive. He said, if you fear the Lord, worship and obey him. And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And the implication is there's going to be blessings. God will be free to bless you. Verse 15, now he's going to give the negative. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. He's just saying, this is the story of Israel. This is a story that you, the Israelites, are a part of, and I'm calling you to break that cycle and not fall back into sin. Well, we know how that worked. After listening to the, uh, the previous words that were said by Samuel, I'm telling you, we're tempted to think that the Israelites have a fresh start. Um, you know that Samuel is saying, okay, it, it seems as if he's saying, now you've got a king, let's break the cycle, let's not go into sin, I'm calling you to love the Lord your God and to worship him and obey him. Um, it seems as if he's giving them a fresh start, that everything in the past is gone. But then we read verse 17. I will call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize that an immense evil, that what an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. And sure enough, a severe storm came up and the people cried out to, uh, to Samuel to intercede. Samuel assures them that even though they've done an evil thing, they would experience God's blessings if they obeyed. But... 
in him giving this statement that you have done an immense evil, and if that has if this is evil and the Lord wants to give a hearty amen, then he's going to bring a storm. And sure enough, a thunderstorm came up, frightening the Israelites. What this is making clear is that God's um, anger could break out at any moment because of the sin of asking a king. God was going to work it for good, but there was a low-burning anger, a low-burning anger over that evil, and it could break out at any moment against them. And so, basically, this was Samuel saying, you had better be on your best behavior. (laughs) You had better be on your best behavior. Well, I want you to know that as Christians in the New Testament... Um, we don't have to live that way. There's no low-burning anger that God could just immediately escalate and aim and target at us. We were once children under wrath, the book of Ephesians tells us, but because God poured his wrath out on his son and because God applied the work of the cross, applied Christ's blood to our heart, credited us with his righteousness, and took our sin and paid for it there on the cross. Because of that, there is no low-burning anger with God toward us. None. If, if that were the case, then God is angry at something that has already been forgiven by Christ, and he's not honoring the sacrifice of his own son. And so even though we see God behaving this way in the Old Testament, do not take your theology from the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. That was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant, the New Testament. But sure enough, the Israelites were told to be on their best behavior because God could break out in anger again. Well, we're to be on our best behavior, but not because we're fearful of God's anger. We're to be on our best behavior, and the purest, the purest motive is because of gratitude for what he's done, because of love for who he is and the relationship that we, the growing relationship that we have with him. Our desire to be on our best behavior should be because of love and gratitude, not because of fear. I love the words that uh, Samuel told them in uh, verse 23 of this chapter. He said, As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. He said, I'm not going to sin by not praying for you. Samuel acknowledged that if he did not pray for the people, then in his eyes it would be sin. And not just sin. He said, I'm not going to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And so Samuel saw it as his duty to pray for these people. But he wasn't just going to pray for them. He was actually going to actively teach them. Teach them. I would assume that this teaching is teaching about the Lord and about uh, the, the path of holiness and about God's justice and about God's holiness that cannot tolerate sin and all sorts of things. He wanted to help them to get them equipped to be in a situation where they would not... Um, fall into sin, at least accidentally. And then Samuel finishes with yet one more encouragement and warning as we come to the end of the chapter of uh, 1 Samuel 12. It says in verse 24 and 25, he says this, Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. 
consider the great things he has done for you. What a wonderful verse. Why We could live that verse out, couldn't we? We could write that verse on a card, maybe stick it in our pocket, or you know, maybe if you stick it in your purse, or, or maybe in your organizer, or wherever else. 1 Samuel 12, 24, that's a wonderful verse to take with you today if, if you're listening to this in the morning. Or maybe you would, you know, if you're listening to this later in the day, take it for tomorrow. 1 Samuel 12, 24 is a wonderful verse to reflect on, to meditate on, and to live by. Above all, fear the Lord and worship Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things He has done for you. And then verse 25, However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. God's going to bless if there's obedience. God's going to curse and bring consequences if there's disobedience. That's a good word for us. We should strive to live in such a way that we are uh, putting a smile on God's face, not just because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, but because we are working out our salvation, that it's that, that who we are inside, that the saved person that we are is demonstrating itself in good and moral and godly behavior. Okay, Luke nine. Once again, much of this is uh, is thing. It's things that we've already looked at in previous um, readings of Matthew and Mark. So let's just kind of uh, hop, skip, and jump throughout Luke chapter nine. Um, in verses one through six, Jesus does send out the twelve disciples. But he told them not to take anything with them, nor look for a better place to stay once they were settled into a town. He wanted them to be content, but he also wanted them to trust in the Lord, to rely upon the goodness of the people of God, um, those that were ready for the kingdom, but he wanted them to trust in the Lord. This isn't. This is not normative uh, because later this is Luke 9 but later in Luke chapter 22 verses 35 and 36 he would send uh, disciples out again and this time he would encourage them to take provision he said this time don't go out empty take take you know load your trunk you know take your uh, your backpack and put your toiletries in it and your you know empty your your bank account and put it in your wallet um, so it's not normative for uh, people that are on ministry to go out empty-handed. Um, God may do that. He may may force somebody because of uh, a decline in financial well-being. Someone is just in a position where they are having to trust the Lord. And you don't even have to be in ministry. You just be, could be a Christian, and sometimes we're put in those situations. Um, but, uh, but we see in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus actually did this intentionally. I believe that it was because he wanted them to um, be recipients of the love, provision, and care of those that were either already in the kingdom or those that were open to listening to the message of the kingdom and embracing it. He also wanted them to trust in the Lord's provision. Uh, in verses 7 through 9, we just hear that uh, Herod Antipas wanted to see Jesus. Uh, you know, he was a little confused about John the Baptist and Jesus, but uh, Jesus had no time uh, for someone who just wanted to look at him as a spectacle. Jesus was here for substantive reasons. 
Um, verses 10 through 17, we read of the 5,000 men plus women and children. Usually, if you know, if you've got in your Bible where it says, you know, just a short little summary above verses about what those verses are supposed to be about, usually it says feeding of the 5,000. Well, that's because they can't write out the whole thing. Feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. But just realize when it says 5,000, that's the men. It doesn't include the women and children. Jesus' miracle was incredibly phenomenal that he took five loaves, two fishes, and fed. It could have been as many as 15,000 people or so. Verses 18 through 20, uh, we have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus asked the, the crowd uh, who the crowd said that he was. And, uh, you know, some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, and, and uh, you know, some said, well, you know, you're somebody else, and there was a list. But in verses 20, in verse 20, uh, Jesus said, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. One of the things that we get to see is as we read in the Gospels, we get to see Peter kind of coming along and kind of being trained and equipped by Jesus. And Jesus is not only instructing him theologically, he's also uh He's also equipping his character and providing opportunities for him to grow. Uh, Jesus had debriefing times with Peter and some of the disciples after they came back to talk to them about how they were to think. What Jesus is doing for three, three and a half years or so is he is training his disciples. But as someone who has the entirety of Scripture, we get to not only read the Gospels where Jesus equipped Peter and others, but then we get to read the book of Acts. And we get to read about um, how God used Peter uh, after he had been trained by Jesus. And then we get to read First uh, and Second Peter, letters that were written by him. Um, so it's, it's just incredible. We see that the Lord doesn't just call people to... Uh, some duty, whether it's a full-time ministry position or it's a ministry job or whether it's just someone working in the marketplace, uh, but they are being a missionary in their, in their job. Um, he doesn't call us to anything that he doesn't equip us for, and we see that principle carried out in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, in verses 21 and 22, predicted his death. In verses 23 through 27, once again he said, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The denying of self, I'm telling you, we in America know very little of denying ourselves. There are some that are not doing well financially. And there are things that they not only want, but things that they need that they cannot have. But generally speaking, generally speaking, the majority of Americans, we don't know how to deny ourselves. Our waistlines testify to that. Our, I mean, we, we don't know how to deny ourselves whenever we want to watch TV and binge watch. We don't know how to deny ourselves whenever we go on a vacation. We feel like we need, but yet we can't afford, and so we throw it on a credit card. We don't know how to deny ourselves. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to say no to you. You need to say no to you. I know a pastor, a guy named John MacArthur. I remember one of the things he once said is every now and then he just tells himself no, even to good things, just to let his body know who's in charge. And uh, I, I think that's good. It's good to say no to ourselves. When's the last time you told yourself no? Now, this is not just, um, you know, this, this. we're not talking about some going back to the dark ages of the Christian church where, you know, 
supposedly Christians would would beat themselves, you know, just to try to bring their flesh into subjection using Paul's language. That's not what it's being. That's not what being is being talked about. It's it's denying ourselves to say yes to Jesus. It's not it's not denying ourselves as an end in itself. It's denying ourselves to say yes to Jesus. And one of the things that I shared, and I'm recording this on a Thursday, but one of the things I shared last night in Wednesday night church was that the closer we get to Jesus and the more serious we are about reading and studying and understanding God's word and then obeying God's word, then the more we are able to say yes to ourselves because we are wanting the same things that Jesus wants. But Jesus is talking about people, especially those on the front end. That if you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to come after me, and I think the big picture, he's talking about people who want to be saved. He said, you're going to have to deny yourself. Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Deny yourself. The other is take up your cross daily. Take up a cross. I mean, I've heard some people say, oh, you know, my health situation is my cross to bear or my financial calamity is my cross to bear. No, that's not it. Uh, With the Romans, um, whenever someone committed some major infraction, they broke some major law of Rome, essentially what they were saying was, is that I'm greater than Rome and I don't have to obey Rome's laws. And so what Rome would do is say, okay, you violated such a major crime that this is a capital offense. And so what we're going to do is we're going to state in a picture that Rome has the final word and you are going to submit to Rome. And so what they would do is make you go under your cross to carry your cross to show that Rome ultimately was over you. You thought you were over Rome to break Rome's law, but Rome has the final say and you are submitting to Rome's cross. It's you're under Rome's cross. And so whenever Jesus said, take up his cross daily, this is saying that we are under the cross of Christ, but it's essentially our cross because it's our life that we're living, but we are submitting to the authority of Christ. But we don't do so um, unwillingly. We do so joyfully because he's worth it. And oh, some may say, well, the cross is leading to death. Yes, that takes us back to deny yourself. Your life is not about yourself. People that are saved, it's not just life insurance. It is so that we can follow the Lord and obey the Lord and say no to us so that we can say yes to him. That's what it means to be saved. In fact, the next verse, uh, Jesus said, if you want to lose your life, If you want to lose your life for eternity, then try to save it in this life. Live for yourself in this life, and then you will lose it in hell for eternity. But if you want to lose your life, lose your life how? Lose your life in the cross. Lose your life by saying no to you and yes to Jesus. Then he said you'll save it in eternity. You will be in heaven. That's what saved people do. Verse 25, he said there's no benefit to gaining the world if that were possible, if in so doing we lose our own soul. Once again, Jesus is clearly talking about eternity, that if we were to say yes to our flesh and gain all of the world's pleasures and all of the world's resources, he said, what good would that do if you lost your soul? Because you're going to be on the other side of death a whole lot longer than on this side. In verse 26, he said, if you are ashamed of me and my word, I will be ashamed of you. 
Jesus said, I want you to love me and enjoy me and obey me and serve me and submit to me in your life so that you are not ashamed of me because I'm who you're living for. And when you are not ashamed of me, that's just a telltale sign of the fact that whenever you stand before me on the day of judgment, I'm not going to be ashamed of you either. In verse 27, uh, Jesus is talking about how some of his disciples would see the kingdom of God. Now, what's that talking about? I think that's talking about verses 28 through 36, when Jesus went up on a high mountain eight days later and was transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. I think that high mountain was Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, if you were to look up Google Mount Hermon in Israel, uh, you would see a very large mountain. looks like a mountain in Colorado with snow on the top of it. It is actually in northern Israel. And uh, in Israel, you can have, you know, a desert, or you can have, uh, they, some of them actually head up north and go snow skiing up on Mount Hermon. It's thought that this may be the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Um, then in verses 37 through 43, we see that Jesus had power over a demon, uh, and he expresses faith at his disciples' inability to trust in him to do the work of getting that demon out, but Jesus cast the demon out. In verses 43 through 45, uh, once it, we have Jesus once again predicting his death the second time. The second time, but it says that it was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. So this is God's part. God is concealing from them this truth that Jesus is going to die, be buried, and rise again. But on man's side, I'm sure that they were just wondering, is Jesus talking in parables again? What's he talking about? Uh, verses 46 through 48, Jesus talks about who is the greatest, and he uses a child, one of humility, one that doesn't necessarily have adult self-centered ambition, um, and he says in verse 48, whoever wants to, uh, whoever is least among you, this is the great. The way up is down in the Christian worldview. The way to greatness is servitude and slavery to others, to not make our life about ourselves, to nay say no to us, but to say yes to others. And that takes us back to what Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus applying it to both of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deny yourself. Uh, serve him and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Then deny yourself and serve them. Greatness is found in obeying the commandments and serving and saying no to us in order to say yes to someone else. Uh, in verses 4, 49 and 50, um, this, this is just interesting. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever's not against us is for you. Whoever's not against you is for you. So what Jesus, what John was doing is saying, hey, somebody's got correct theology and someone is, is engaged in Christian ministry because they were using Jesus' name and the demons were actually coming out. So we can assume correct theology and they were engaged in Christian ministry. So they're doing a good thing. But John wanted to stop them. Why? Because Jesus had given the apostles the ability to cast out demons, and this guy wasn't one of the apostles, and so I think John may have been threatened and said, you should not be doing this. 
in spite of the fact that this guy had good theology and was engaged in Christian ministry. One of the things we cannot do in our life as Christians is be threatened by others who have good theology and are engaged in Christian ministry, but think they're not one of us and therefore look down on them. That is not true. We are a part of individual churches, but our individual churches, individual believers are part of something bigger. We're part of the kingdom. And if someone is saved, regardless of what their culture is, regardless of what their language is, regardless of what their denomination is, regardless of any of that, regardless of their sin preference, you know, I sin, you sin, um, regardless of somebody's sin preference, that if they are saved, they are in the kingdom just like us, and we are on the same team. There may be things that we cannot agree on theologically because there would be some issues where we would have some disagreements, but take no, make no question about it. We are on the same team. Verses 51 through 56, they journeyed toward Jerusalem, and uh, they were Jesus was wanting to stop in a city in Samaria, but that city didn't welcome him. And so now John, once again, who has demonstrated kind of a, a self-centered, threatened response to um, the previous situation about this person who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, whenever this city did not welcome Jesus, uh, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> Verse 55, but he, Jesus, turned around and rebuked them and they went to another village. I wonder if Jesus looked around and just with disappointment in his eyes, shaking his head, said, stop it. And they went on to another village. Once again, this disciple of love was flawed. He was sinful, just like everybody else. But Jesus was just making it clear. Go easy on people. Stand up for truth, but be filled with grace. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. And it's so easy to stand up on the pedestal of truth and look down our self-righteous, pious, pharisaical nose at other people. But we have to stand on two pedestals at the same time, grace and truth. That means that, yes, there's going to be things that happen, bad things that happen, but we're going to love anyway. We're not going to respond in kind. We're not going to be critical and judgmental. We're going to stand up for truth. We're going to call people to, to comply with that truth, but we're going to be gracious as well. In verses 57 through 62 to the end of the chapter, um, there are three separate people that come to Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jesus just makes it very clear that, you know what, if there's something that's keeping you from following me, go on and do that thing because you're not worthy of following me. Jesus said, I'm either first place or I'm not. And friend, I just want you to know that as we read those last few verses of Luke chapter 9, that Jesus was speaking in the New Testament, and that still applies to us. Jesus is either first place in our life, or he has no place in our life. I'm not saying that we're not saved if he's not first place. I'm saying that we have rendered him irrelevant. We have shamed him if he is not first place. Make him first place in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's all grace. Being saved is by grace and living is by your grace. It's all grace. 
Yet that grace came at a high price. You died because of grace to give us that grace, to give us that forgiveness, but now you also demand that we follow you wholeheartedly. Help us, Lord, to do just that. Help us to bask in your grace as we are loving you supremely, serving you wholeheartedly, and obeying you instantly and completely. You're worthy of that. And it is the way to joy for us. Help us to live in grace and truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together again today. I am Pastor Matt Ellis, and the Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.